Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Well, the uh, the world got notably more dangerous last night while we slept. North Korea blew up the joint liaison office that it operated with South Korea. The office, equivalent to an embassy, was opened in 2018 in a sign that relations were moving toward peace. We talked yesterday with uh, David Aikman about rising tensions on the Korean Peninsula and the destruction of the joint liaison office by the North is a sign that those tensions are escalating. So I want us to be praying for peace today. I want us to be uh, praying in the power of the one whose name is Jesus, the peace who passes all understanding. Here in this uh, country, we are hearing rallying cries, no justice, no peace. That is true. There is a true truth in that statement. Um, and there's also no no peace with no justice, like, right? So no justice, no peace. Um, there's no peace without Jesus. He is the peace who passes all understanding. He is the Prince of Peace. And we are to be people who sow peace in the world that he so loves. So uh, as we gather this morning around the news headlines and seek to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the matters of this day, let us be praying for peace, peace with God through Jesus Christ, which gives us then Uh, the hope of having peace with ourselves. I mean, don't you want to live at peace with yourself? If no one else, don't you want to live at least with peace with yourself? That comes through Jesus. And then, yes, uh, living peaceably with everyone, uh, as far as it's up to us, right? That's what the Bible says. Insofar as it's up to us, let us live peaceably with everyone. We also talked yesterday with David Aikman about uh, rising tensions in Hong Kong as China continues its aggressive, I don't know, communization, I don't know if that's a word, Um, of the once relatively free, semi-autonomous city of Hong Kong. Um, Israeli news sources are reporting out today that uh, one-way direct flights from Hong Kong to Tel Aviv will begin next week. The New York Times is reporting this morning that families are actively packing and planning to flee what they now perceive as, quote, the coming reign of terror. Uh, We're going to keep our eye on Hong Kong. We're certainly going to keep our eye on China. And we're going to pray. We're going to pray for God's intervention um, here at home and around the world. Individuals, families, employers, schools, churches, healthcare workers, and healthcare institutions—literally every level of government—is dealing with a rising number of cases of the coronavirus. It has not gone away. We are now dealing with it in my own family, um, and so um, the acknowledgement that the challenges that we face as a nation uh, are also. Hot related to protests in the streets and cities across the country, not least of which now the city of Atlanta. You know, the truth be told, the values that we espouse, values of freedom and justice for all, um, those values have not been equally experienced in this country over generations. Based on what? Based on the color of skin. So we're talking about all of that today. Here at the outset, outset we're going to actually deal with a decision that was handed down yesterday by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, you are going to 
hear and see the media on both sides of the uh, uh, of the spectrum. You're going to uh, hear the media today seek to make this a flashpoint. Um, I would like us to have a um, civil conversation this morning about the legal statute that the justices of the Supreme Court were being asked to interpret. It is a statute about non-discrimination. And when we talk about being Christians in the culture today, we are going to show no partiality. I want you to keep that in mind as we have this next conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University about the Supreme Court's decision about employee employers and employees who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. That conversation up next. Joining me now, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Welcome back, sir. Hey, good to be with you, Carmen. How are you doing? Well, I, I am well, thank you. You are well? Uh, yeah, doing doing very well. Just uh, easing into the summer. I actually started teaching a summer course yesterday, so uh, it's been actually good to be interacting with students again. Okay, well, consider us your students this morning. We need to talk about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which uh, prohibits discrimination, quote, because of sex, end quote. And the decision yesterday by the Supreme Court of the United States, um, and maybe in particular Justices Neil Gorsuch and Chief Justice John Roberts, joining the court's, um, you know, quote-unquote liberals in this 6-3 ruling. So what's going on here? Well, I mean, you have to start with really the nature of the law itself. I mean, it was it's part of the Civil Rights Act, as you mentioned. <clears throat> and as everyone probably knows, that act was really revolving primarily around uh, racial discrimination, but it also included a lot of other uh, elements of civil rights, including employment discrimination, uh, on many bases. And so it was trying to protect people from being fired or even not being hired on the basis of a race, religion, uh, national origin, uh, color, and also, as you said, sex was inserted as well. Um, and so the, the question in Bost the Bostock case was really whether or not that word sex uh, applies also to people on the basis of sexual orientation uh, or even on the basis of gender identity. And the Supreme Court had to wrestle with whether or not the law should be interpreted to mean that. And as we heard yesterday, and as sort of a big uh, bomb dropped yesterday, the court decided that that word did apply uh, to people on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So it essentially means uh, people can't be fired or suffer employment discrimination on those bases uh, due to that law. And as you might expect, uh, it's been quite controversial. Uh, quite controversial indeed. So um, in, in maybe in the same way that we have learned to say Obergefell uh, in right. the decision related to same-sex marriage in 2015, um, we're going to need to learn to refer to this as the Bostock or Bostock. I'm gonna, I, I go ahead, let's teach me how to say it now. Uh, Bostock, as far as I know, yeah. Bostock. All right. So we're going to refer to this as the Bostock case. It includes um, three cases, one that we have talked about uh, at some length, the Harris Funeral Homes case um, out of Michigan. 
um, but a couple of other cases as well. They chose to consolidate these cases uh, because they were really presenting the same question. The question, does discrimination on the basis of sex include sexual orientation as a part of sex? Um, maybe the maybe the surprise to some yesterday um, was not only Chief Justice John Roberts Jr. Uh, joining the liberals, but Neil Gorsuch joining uh, in you know in what right. would be understood to be liberals in this. So maybe this is not a liberal conservative divide. Maybe this is a conversation about what. <laughs> that's a that's a good way to to get into it. I think. Um... And, you know, we could really go into the weeds, and I always want to be careful when we get close to the weeds and on, on a radio show, but we're really looking at dueling judicial philosophies here to some extent. Um, Justice Gorsuch is arguing for what uh, many of us would call textualism, whereas Justice Alito in the dissent is arguing for what we would call original meaning. Gorsuch, very conservative on the whole. Alito, very conservative on the whole. Um, and they both use very traditional conservative judicial philosophies, but they arrive at a different conclusion, even though they use those particular philosophies. Um, Justice Gorsuch is really hinging his argument on the potential on the meaning of the word sex. And so the example he uses is uh, if a woman shows up to a party with a husband, then there would be no punishment from her. If a woman shows up to a party with a with a wife and she's punished, then ultimately she's being punished because she's a woman who showed up with a wife as opposed to being a man who showed up with a wife. And so what he's saying is if an employer acted against her on that basis, it truly is because of her sex and her sex alone. Um, Justice Alito responds, you know, it's it's maybe an argument that you can make based on the meaning of the word sex in that particular context, but no one who wrote the 1964 Civil Rights Amendment would have ever believed that the use of the word sex would refer to sexual orientation. They simply weren't did not have that in mind uh, when they were writing the word itself. And so you're looking at do we are we bound by the strict meaning of the text of the word and how it could be uh, interpreted? Or are we bound by the intentions and the meaning of those who wrote the text and understood it themselves? And so very traditional approaches, those overlap to some extent, but you see very different outcomes. So let me ask a question that uh, that extends to another conversation we're having in the culture today. When the founders of the country wrote all, when they wrote the word all in terms of all people being created equal, and when they right. wrote that word, did they mean all people, or did they mean all the people who they saw as people at the time? Because I, I don't think that's an irrelevant conversation um, to the one that we're having now. Um, you and I view, view the word all to mean all, everybody, every skin tone, every person from every place are all created equal. That's actually not what the founders meant when they used the word all. Well, I mean, that's a that's a big can of worms. I mean, there there are arguments back and forth, even about what Jefferson himself meant when he would use the word um, all. Um, Jefferson describes later in his writings that he really did mean something broader and that he, he believed that um, African-Americans and even slaves um, were created equal. They just simply weren't being treated equally and they weren't being recognized as equal necessarily. Uh, and others, of course, would argue differently and say that um, the, really the framers only had this very narrow sense in mind of people like themselves. 
But what we're really getting at is we, what kind of authority should those should that thinking have? Um, are we bound by the thinking of the people who write words? Are we allowed to interpret those words differently in the future based upon an evolving society? Um, <clears throat> and that's really at the heart of the of the argument here in the Bostock case, um, I think. But you know, I think it's it's a little bit unfair to Justice Gorsuch. He's going to get dragged through it by people on the right side of the aisle, the conservative side of the aisle, for a while, I think, for this argument. But he's using a very traditional approach, and he's not arguing mm -hmm. that it's only up to him to define the meaning of the text. It's only up to his discretion and his thoughts and his feelings. He's saying that I'm limited by the text itself. Here's just how the text can be interpreted um, to be understood. Um, it's very different, for example, than what Justice Ginsburg might have written in this case. And I think, mm -hmm. honestly, that's part of part of why probably Chief Justice Roberts assigned the opinion to Gorsuch, because he knew the outcome would look more like this than what it would have looked like if Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer or someone else written the opinion. Um, OK, so I think that in terms of reminding ourselves that we do have three branches of government, there are some actions in the executive branch that um, that will be construed as related to this through the um, uh, let's see. I don't know. Some want I can't remember who it's not Homeland Security. That doesn't make any sense. Um, somebody has issued one of the agencies of the executive branch has issued uh, counsel related to this topic. Sure. Um, but also there are pieces of legislation in front of Congress. Uh, yes. Like the Equality Act. And so I yep. think to be fair, the Supreme, the justices would say we're taking an action based on a statute that uh, that's on the books. If you don't like the statute that's on the books, write a different law. That's correct. That, they, that could be an argument that the justices would make. Uh, the dissenters would argue, though, that those efforts have been attempted and they failed, which suggests mm -hmm. that people in Congress even believe that the act did not apply to sexual orientation or gender identity, or otherwise they wouldn't have been trying to rewrite the law or to update the law to include that kind of language. And so the question is really, I mean, how much should legislation be driving this process to some extent? How much should the Supreme Court be driving the process? You know, Justice Alito in the dissent makes it very clear. He says there's really only one way to describe what happened today, and that's legislation. And so for him, the majority is really overstepping its boundaries of what the Supreme Court ought to do. For Justice Gorsuch, it's just a simple interpretation of the law. Interesting. All right, let's uh, let's move after a very brief break to a conversation about some proposed legislation. Uh, we haven't seen it all yet, but the U.S. Congress is going to be debating policing reform, both from uh, both from legislation that's being put forth in the House by Democrats and. Uh, legislation that will be before the Senate from Republicans, and we also are expecting an executive order today related to this from the president. So we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University up next. <laughs> Continuing my conversation now with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, Mark, let's pivot to uh, a conversation about the debate in the country about policing reform. We have talked about it some here already on the program. Um, the, the legislative part of the process has now begun. Um, take us in. You can start this conversation wherever you want. Um, I'll follow your lead on this. Um, I have lots of questions, not least of which. What should be decided at a federal level and what is best left up to local communities? But I'm going to let you start this conversation where you want. 
I, in some ways, you know, what we're looking at is really a replay of the classic polarization we've seen uh, between the two major parties for the last few decades. Um, the Republicans are going in a, a, you know, their approach to reform is a little bit milder. Uh, it's a little bit more respectful, let's say, of uh, local autonomy and also of a little bit more deference to the police. You know, there's a clear understanding that there needs to be some kind of change. Uh, Republicans, especially in the Senate, are advocating for more training, uh, for maybe more of a focus on de-escalation so that you can avoid things like chokeholds. Um, whereas the Democrats would prefer to ban things like chokeholds and would prefer to maybe make it a little bit more of a clear national standard um, that would restrict more of what the police can actually do. Um, you know, this kind of feeds into the, the images that we've seen the two parties put forward over the last few decades. The Republicans do tend to be more law and order, a little bit more deferential to law enforcement on the whole. Uh, Democrats tend to be more focused on um, victims' rights, broadly speaking. Now, you know, those are stereotypes. Seeing those stereotypes play out. We do have one wild card in the whole thing, and that's Justin Amash, uh, the House member who's a libertarian. And he has a bill that's really just trying to do one thing, and that's to address the issue of qualified immunity. Um, and essentially what that gets at is making it easier for people to sue police officers um, if they were mistreated. And so making it easier for people to recover damages and to force police officers to compensate, or at least police agencies to compensate uh, when mistreatment happens. Amash has gathered a lot of uh, co-sponsors in the House, but most of them are Democrats. And the Republicans are saying in the Senate that they will not uh, support a ban or reduction in qualified immunity. And so, you know, it's kind of the state of the field that we're looking at right now. It'll be interesting to see whether continued demonstrations will uh, force them to kind of reevaluate the politics of this on both sides. Are there leading voices in this conversation uh, to whom we should be paying attention? Uh, you know, it, it's... It, ev what everyone says about everything is not always relevant to the outcome. Right. So are there particular voices that you would direct us to be listening to? Uh, I think in the Senate, uh, the Republicans are really rallying around Tim Scott. So he's an African-American uh, senator from South Carolina, which is historic in its own way, of course. And he's spoken a good bit uh, recently and historically about uh, some of his own mistreatments at the hand of police officers. Um, he's talked about even as a sitting United States senator being forced to show identification when he enters federal buildings. And he's convinced it's simply because of his skin color, because he's never seen other colleagues um, who've been treated that way. And so he's coming at this uh, from a personal perspective. Um, and so he's he's kind of the focal person, I think, there. And he's also an interesting voice on the issue. Um, and he's also someone, I think, for people who are a little bit more traditional, a little bit more conservative, um, should pay attention to, because I think he'll provide that unique personal perspective uh, that matters. Uh, and in the House, you know, I would say Justin Amash is interesting, as I already said. Uh, his libertarian streak um, is sort of putting him in between a bunch of groups. Um, it'll be interesting for me to see if he can make any headway. Uh, that's one disadvantage of being disconnected from one of the major political parties, is he can't really feed into those um, structures in place in the House to get more support. All right. You're um, you're always so helpful uh, that you and I were also going to maybe touch on the resumption of campaigning, but that's going to go on until November. So we got plenty of time to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, plenty of time for campaigning. The presidential election is not going mm. anywhere. Mm. 
Hey, we appreciate you being with us as always. Thank you for your perspective. Thank you for your diligence. Thank you for um, always talking with us in a way that uh, helps uh, elevate the conversation. So really appreciate it. Thank you, Carmen, to you and all your listeners. You guys take care. Likewise. All right, that's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You can find him at Cedarville University. We'll be right back. Joining me next, the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul and the president of the Northwest Media Network, of which the Faith Radio Network is a part, Dr. Alan Curitan will be here. We're going to talk about the death of George Floyd. We are going to talk about how the University of uh, uh, the University of Northwestern um, at St. Paul is involved in reconciliation efforts on multiple levels. Um, we're going to talk about the change that uh, that happens over time through education um, and through then those young people who are sent out from institutions of higher learning. We're going to talk about Christian ed in general. And yes, we are going to talk about reopening the campus in the fall. That's all up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This Friday night at the dinner table, don't miss an important lecture from mom and dad on your latest big mistake. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you invited your teen to attend a lecture every time she did something wrong, do you think she'd ever show up? Yeah, right. Parents tend to function in nonstop correction mode. But there's nothing more destructive to your relationship with your teen than constant lecturing, nagging, and soapboxing. So today, I urge you to take the shut up challenge. At the risk of sounding rude, parents need to know that they can still teach vital lessons without saying a single word. Give your child some space. Watch how the shut up challenge can help your teen grow up. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining me now, Dr. Alan Curtin. He is the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. You can find uh, documents related to the conversations that we are having today at unwsp.edu, unwsp.edu. Dr. Curtin, welcome to your own program. Hey, morning, Carmen. Yeah. Good morning, Carmen. It's good to connect hey, with you Hey, I like again. my job. Thanks for, you know, thanks for employing me. Really You're appreciate welcome. it. You're welcome. Glad That's that good. we have the privilege of having you on the air every day. Oh, it's just, it's so fun. Um, love, love this place. Love those with whom I have the opportunity to labor each and every day. So it, it is a great privilege. Good. It is unique uh, to, you know, to be engaged in a radio ministry that is a ministry of a university. We, mm-hmm. um, we have a close connection to one another. But uh, I would say that in times like these, sometimes the uh, the media effort gets out in front of, uh, you know, the university process. And so your message uh, is just greatly received, really appreciated. You have um, you have provided a message related to the death of George Floyd, what's going on in the culture and the university's response that I just felt like people need to hear and people need to know that um, the University of Northwestern St. Paul is not new to this conversation and is leaning into it. So talk with us about those two realities. This is not a new conversation, and the university is leaning into it. Well, 
you know, some of it comes from our history uh, as an institution. And, and in many respects, uh, we res- we reflected the culture of the time. So granted, we've been in uh, operation since 1902, but um, we, we've had issues where we've had to address um, overt and blatant res- racism and stereotyping uh, on our campus because, Carmen, it's, you know, it's we, we recognize as followers of Christ that we are sinful creatures. We recognize there are things that we have to address in our lives and change. And so we've been trying to do so intentionally uh, for a number of years. And during the 19 years I've been here, we, I, we've been intentionally and deliberately building on that because I know that anything that happens over long t- over time and is deliberate will have lasting change rather than something that's uh, immediate. Um, and so uh, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. However, the people that are running the race want it to be a sprint, and I don't blame them because they're the ones that are bearing the brunt of uh, what they're experiencing. So, so our, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. They need to know that we're listening. They need to know that we care. And they need to know that we're uh, actively trying to change culture. And that takes uh, a deliberate and intentional uh, commitment yeah. and, and processes. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I appreciated was the way you outlined sort of evidence that uh, people from the University of Northwestern St. Paul mm-hmm. have been actively engaged in the conversation. There's lots of evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Talk with us about the change that is clearly still needed um, and the and the intentional changes that you've been making at the University of Northwestern um, over time and those that are continuing um, continuing today. Well, one of the things we've got to do is make sure that people are aware of what they're doing and what they're saying. Uh, sometimes uh, in our innocence or in the fact that we might be part of the dominant culture, uh, we say things or do things that are um, uh, harmful or hurtful or uh, insulting. I should say, to our fellow brothers and sisters. And, uh, you know, this is this is phenomenon is worldwide because, and Carmen Lish is talking about, because of the sin that's in, in the lives of all of us. I mean, if, if I'm over in Ireland, I'm talking between Catholics and Protestants. Um, if I'm in Africa, it's one tribe versus another. If I'm in uh, Eastern Europe, you know, it's, it's different ethnicities, different cultures. Uh, in North and South Korea, when you were talking about that a few minutes ago, uh, there are there this tribalism or this racism. This has always been there. It's always. I mean, you can read it through the Old Testament uh, in regards to ethnicities and, and different things. But the Lord, the Lord wants us to seek after Him, and there's there's the radical change then in our lives that comes only through that change in Christ. And uh, to love our neighbors as ourselves. But that is really, really hard to do, especially depending on which culture that we've been raised in, just simply by our birth and our situation. So at Northwestern, what we're doing is that um, we, last fall, we had a commitment to prayer and reconciliation to unity. And it was a service of lament. And it was uh, the board members, uh, myself, other leaders in the institution, faculty, students, alumni all participated, and it was a time of repentance. It was a time for us to acknowledge uh, what has happened in the past, to commit to a future that was free of racism, one that in a quest towards unity from a biblical perspective where we are all one in Christ, regardless of our age, 
of our our gender, of our uh, our race, et cetera, Uh, economic status, the whole bit. And then then we're also implementing a series of things on campus like um, a monthly training and coaching session for our faculty and staff when it comes to cultural intelligence. We've also implemented uh, a training for unconscious bias, uh, bias awareness. Just, you know, people, sometimes we just don't know what we're doing or saying, you know, that type of thing, uh, just to raise that consciousness. We've, we've also, in our chapel series, as you know, we have chapel every Monday through Friday every day. And we wanted to talk about pro-life and, and not pro-life just only in the summation of abortion, but pro, a comprehensive pro-life perspective. Um, and then we talked about um, uh, that our, we have a commitment as an organization to hire more diverse people that reflect the kingdom of God. The trustees, when they hired me back in 19, said, uh, 20, <laughs> 2002, yeah, 19 years ago. When the faculty, I mean, when the board hired me, they said, make the university look like the kingdom of God. So we've right. been intentionally recruiting and pursuing uh, different ethnicities, if you will, to be part of this community. Now, when you do that, when you when you mix it in, you get these challenges. And we we have to change. We have to change, and, and we need to change to be more reflective of the multiculturalism of the kingdom of God. So we've we've done other things too, Carmen. I can go on with the list, but uh, yeah, no, it's five pages long. So right. right, so we'll we'll encourage people to go read President Alan Curtin's entire message to the University of Northwestern St. Paul community. You can find it at unwsp.edu. Alan, before we move on from this topic, uh, let me just highlight a word that you keep keep saying. You keep referring to the kingdom. You keep referring to uh, the kingdom of God. And and we pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, thy kingdom come. I will mm-hmm. be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is is there some is there some connection there? Is there some drive in your, you know, own personal way of thinking about this that, you know, there's a connection between who I worship and how I worship and what I'm on earth to do that's a, that's a part of this conversation we're having as a culture today. Well, my theology is based um on the belief that I am responsible to bring Christ and his biblical or godly principles as outlined in, in, the, in the Word of God to my culture. So um, I always encourage my students, you need to engage culture. Claim it for Christ. Move to a community with a group of your friends, uh, those that you're connected with, and claim that community for Christ. And then just starting to serve and influence. So one, a part of our mission statement, which, which was part of my uh, epistle there, the five-page thing, was the fact that it was a delight for me to see graduates and students and people of this community being God-honoring leaders in this whole movement. And and they were out there actually honoring the Lord by their actions and what they were doing in regards to what's happening here in Minneapolis. And I was so proud of them because they were doing what we wanted or what we had hoped or what we aspire them to do. And so my my theology and that of the commitment of Northwestern is that we want to redeem culture for Christ. And there, I think we have a burden and responsibility as followers of Christ to confront and address evil when we see it. And um, that has been somewhat of the fabric of the United States for since the, the start of our country, is that when we get a chance and opportunity to see evil and we'll see it daily, we have a burden to stop, to address it and stop it. Now, that's not easy. That's not easy at all. 
But that's the battle, in my, re- in my view, that's taking place here on earth. And so our desire is, that, Lord, your kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, you know, the day's coming when he's going to recapture this creation and put his kingdom here. So um, anyways, that's what my theology is driving it. I love that. Uh, it is not only uh, Curatonian, it's Kyponian. <laughs> There you go. All right. Hey, we uh, we're going to come back in just a moment with Dr. Alan Curitan, president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Again, I encourage you to read the full uh, message that he has uh, that he has posted at UNWSP.edu. I particularly love the litany um, referring to graduates and students and alums and faculty um, and, and on and on and on who are actively participating in bringing about the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, specifically in relationship to the issues in, uh, in the Twin Cities uh, and, and specifically in response to the death of George Floyd. So please grab that. It's the president's message to the UNW community, and you can find it at unwsp.edu. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with my colleague and friend, my brother in Christ, the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul, Alan Curitan. Um, Dr. Curitan, let's talk a little bit about the state of Christian higher education in what I'll just describe as the COVID era. Um, Colleges were already looking at a downturn in enrollment. Um, This has presented unique challenges for many colleges and universities across the country. What are the conversations that you're having with other, um, you know, uh, administrators and presidents, um, you know, among the college community? Um, and then what are the specific plans there at, uh, at the University of Northwestern St. Paul? As it relates to COVID, correct? Oh, you know, or whatever you want to talk about. You okay, know, it's gotcha. your show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I just wanted to make sure I was clear. You know, we were, um, we were realizing as a, or as an entity of higher education that the Enrollment possibilities of traditional 18-year-old students was going to decline over the course of the next, um, up until the year 2032, because of the birth rate. We knew that. In fact, the cliff, the fall-off is really in 2026. So it drops significantly. And we probably as a country have noticed, especially in certain communities, we're building a lot of elementary schools and, you know, K through 4th and K through 5 schools because there's a huge boom. So... What happened after 2008 and 2009, uh, people stopped having children. And so, you know, there, you know, it'll be interesting to see, Carmen, what happens after COVID. We may have an explosion of babies here in, you know, uh, in the next nine months. So uh, it, there's an ebb and flow to the population. So we in higher ed knew this was coming. So we knew at Northwestern that we had to adjust to a, the reality of a smaller population. So before COVID hit, we decided that it was best to to take an adjustment in our budget and to be able to live in our means. And that's what we do is to live within our means. Then COVID hit. And we're like, right now, the big question, Carmen, is what's going to happen? None of us know. You know, we all wish we could predict the future, but we don't know what's going to happen. We do, we do know this from our research. Our students feel isolated. Uh, secondly, they're lonely. Third, they miss their friends and their community. And, and fourth, they want to get back to campus. So we know that already. The question is, 
how has the economy hit their families? Can they afford to come back? Because we don't know the extent of how deep uh, this impact went on, on the economy and what's been happening. So if mom lost her job, if dad lost her job, if they both lost, you know, just the ramifications of it. So we don't know. What we know from our, our enrollment at Northwestern, things look very positive for the fall in regards to the anticipation of the budget or the numbers that we expected were going to come. Because that looks like it's actually going to happen. So we've been very positive in the last couple of weeks about the response of our students. So when I announced on Friday that we will open in the fall face-to-face on campus, students living in residence halls, and that we will have a number of protocols in place to protect the students. One of the things that we're encouraged by is that the data is now reflecting that this virus is very um, uh, potent for those of us over the age of 65. That includes me. But it's my my era and, and, and those of us older, especially those of us in the United States who are living in facilities like long-term care or memory care or things like that. The young people, we don't see it hitting the young people as much. And, in fact, they may even have it and not even know they have it. So the virus, we, we know that we need to be careful here as a community. I am more concerned about our faculty and staff right now than I am the students. However, I'm concerned about the students. Don't Don't misinterpret that. But... I'm concerned about the faculty and staff within the organization that are, let's say, over the age of 60. So how do we protect them? How do we care for them in the midst of all this? And then at the same time, establish the protocols. So one of the things I've got to discuss with my staff is that we, you know, we have, I would mention this a few minutes ago. We have chapel every day. We gather all 1,600 students, 1,700 students in one room. So we're, we're trying, okay, now how do we do this? You know, so they're going to, we're talking through how do we, how do we make the adjustment during this time period until the vaccine has been found and created and uh, blessed, approved by the FDA. That's a long answer. Is that okay? Yeah. So I'm hoping that there are some really cool media people engaged in the conversation about, um, you know, how to have simultaneous experiences in various mm-hmm. locations. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was yeah. Good. You know, the whole thing. Because Chapel's so great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Students, you know, what's really interesting is they kind of grumble th- during their four years long, I got to go to chapel, I got to go to chapel, because it's required. And then when we survey our alumni who have been out for 10, 14, 15 years, they all say, my number one memory is chapel and the yeah, positivity the rhythm, from it. The right. rhythm of it. The yeah, rhythm, absolutely. the impact. They look back on it and go, wow, that was a good time to be together as a community. I miss those times. So, mm. Yeah. So um, we have about a minute um, left, and I would just love for you to share your heart for Christian higher ed. If people are trying to make a decision right now about where to send their kid to college, um, why send them to an expressly Christian university? We teach every class and ground every activity we have on campus on God's word. So that's the basis for everything in which we do. So we look at all creation from that perspective. Now, we don't indoctrinate. We educate. So we present all sides. Uh, I'll give you an example. We teach all four dominant views of creation. We don't believe them all, but we teach them all. Or in psychology, what type of therapies? And, And we teach them from a biblical worldview because some therapies... In, in the psycho, uh, uh, psychological world are not really biblical. 
So we want our students to know that in case, you know, they, they run into it later or something. So we try to educate them from that perspective. And we come at it from a specific theological viewpoint. And so that's what makes us different than, let's say, the University of Guacamole. So the university, the general university, they're trying to be unspiritual as much as possible. They're trying to take out all the spiritual aspect of it. A friend of mine who uh, uh, leads one of the largest public universities in this country said, we are becoming like universities in Russia. We have literally taken out the spiritual component and, and, and discarded it. He said, that is not the way. And so I know his public university, they are trying to implement and intentionally implement that because you're seeing it as a desert. Our, our public universities are a desert when it comes to the spiritual and, and um, growth and aspect of our students' life because part of the intelligentsia of our country begins to believe so much in themselves that they themselves become a God. And, and that's human nature, that I want to become a God. And so what we recognize from the very beginning is God is the center of everything, that we exist for the purpose to glorify and enjoy him forever. And so that's grounded in the reality that I need to learn all about his creation from his word. And so that's how we're different. And, and we're private. There's no, there's no public Christian university in this country, and therefore, because we're private and at Northwestern, I, we don't accept one dollar of government assistance. We are private. We, are a, we have separated ourselves from the government because I don't want them telling us what to do. So we, we are, it's expensive, but I think it's an investment in your child, your grandchild, your student that uh, pays huge dividends. Carmen, I'm biased. I think this is the best type of education you can get. Absolutely. I, um, I do, too. That's Dr. Alan Curitan, uh, the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Um, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. You can find uh, Dr. Curitan and the University of Northwestern St. Paul at unwsp.edu. Um, Faith Radio is a ministry of the University of Northwestern, and this radio program is a part of the Faith Radio Network. So we are them and they are us, and we are in this together, and it is a great joy. Hey, we are um, fast approaching the end of our fiscal year, so why don't you go ahead and visit us at MyFaithRadio.com, hit the Donate Now button, become a part uh, not only of the Faith Radio listening family, but a part of the giving community. This is 100% listener-supported radio. All right. Um, because I'm not even in my home studio today, I don't actually know how much time we have. Paul, give me a little, oh, 10 less, seconds. Yeah, hey, we got a whole nother hour. We got a whole nother hour coming up next. Stay tuned. Okay. Job chapter two uh, is where I'm going to encourage us all to um, sit this morning for a while. That was the encouragement of Pastor Jason Meyer. Let us, um, let us sit with those who are suffering. Let us see the evil. Let us sit. Let us show sympathy. Let us weep with those who weep. Let us be in solidarity with them. Um, Job's friends are often uh, characterized as the guys who didn't do and say the right things. But there in Job chapter 2, it, it starts off with seven days and nights of silent solidarity in Job's suffering. Um, how long have we sat with those who are uh, lamenting and, um, and grieved with them as they grieve? 
we've talked about the concept of a wake, and the reality is the wake is the period of time between the death and the burial. Um, and we are still uh, grieving as a nation and walking in lament. So let us spend some time there today in Job chapter 2. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.